Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Welcome to our coverage of this second day of the Air Force Association's Air, Space, Cyber Conference and Trade Show, this time in person outside Washington, D.C. Later in the program, how Spirit Air Systems is innovating design and production to expand its defense and space business, and key takeaways from day two of this three-day conference. But first, it is my honor today to welcome our very first United States Space Force Lieutenant General uh, Chance Salty Saltzman, who is the Deputy Chief of Space Operations. Sir, honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much for having me. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Uh, a great, great, uh, great talk today. Uh, like any uh, guy who's talking about a classified space in an uh, classified environment in an unclassified space, you were using uh, historical analogies uh, to great effect. You know, there's a lot of discussion. We heard from General Raymond today uh, talk about uh, grappling, nesting dolls, right? There are limitations to what uh, can be said. But how, how are you as, uh, you know, in the job that you're in, thinking about the adversary and adversary capabilities, because this goes beyond what it is we're seeing immediately. Yesterday, uh, Secretary Kendall uh, thoughtfully raised the issue of the rods, for God, rods from God concept. That's something that we pioneered during the Cold War. So the Chinese are marching into these areas which were theoretical and they're operationalizing certain capabilities. From your standpoint, what's the most important thing for folks to, what, what's the mindset we need to have in looking at space and how quickly uh, space is moving from a threat perspective? Well, I think we don't jump too quickly to trying to counter some of those high-end kinds of capabilities that the adversaries are going after. Honestly, if we focus on resiliency, if we focus on defensive capability, if we focus on making our guardians uh, trained, skilled in tactics, maneuvering, if we focus on attribution of irresponsible behavior in space, I think all of those things collectively create uh, a certain amount of deterrence so that we don't have to figure out exactly how we deal with a grappling spacecraft, et cetera. And so that is our first starting, but that's our starting point, is how do we make ourselves more resilient, more defendable? You do that with resilient systems and architectures. You do it through training. You do it through preparedness. Uh, and so that's where we're starting. Um, when, when folks think of operations in almost every domain, there's a, a speed element to it where you're the highest speed of domains, I mean, I suppose cyber would be the only thing faster than you, right? But maneuvering is also very challenging and difficult. It's something that is dozens of orbits ahead in order for you to place, right? I mean, the, p people have a tendency of thinking of Star Wars where it's not something that you're turning on a dime. I mean, orbital mechanics are still orbital me mechanics. What are the unique elements of that environment? You can't re re refuel as easily, right? I mean, from a standpoint of maneuvering means burning up lots of gas. How does how do you think of this in the totality of a battle space when folks are trying to wrap their mind around what that really means in terms of space operations? Well, you mentioned in my talk that I used some historical examples uh, to talk about space operations, but in reality, a lot of the lessons are still applicable. 
And so in the same way that the Air Force had to overcome a certain mindset in two-dimensional warfighting when it separated from the Army, the, the scope, scale, speed, duration, all of those things are fundamentally different than the way a land force fights when you're in the air. Now we're taking it to the next level. Speed and distance is on a different scale than it was in the Air Force. Um, your, your point about cyber is a good one. Uh, obviously cyber moves pretty quickly, but don't forget that satellites in orbit are, is just debris unless RF signals and cyber connects them back to users. Right. So we operate at cyber speeds as well as orbital speeds. And so that's just part of the training. How do you deal with something move at orbital velocity? How do you deal with things coming from the sun at the speed of light? How do you deal with these things when you have to deal with them on a global scale? By definition, everything we do is on a global scale. Um, so we just have to plan for it and train for it and educate our force. Um, let me ask you a question that my colleague, uh, Laura Winter, uh, who is going to be hosting our Downlink podcast, uh, frequently asks, right, what are, who's got the Space Forces back at the end of the day? I mean, we come to recognize as a military force, we can't move, see, shoot, right, all the attributes. You used to be an Air Force general, as you, as you uh, point out, uh, and you still have a lot of Air Force DNA in you, by the way, Department of Air Force. But ultimately, there's this sense that space is always going to be there for us. How does the rest of the force support the Space Force? Obviously, there are, there are terrestrial assets as well and cables that contribute to the space architecture. But what, what does the rest of the Joint Force need to be doing in order to support you in your mission, given you're in all domains and all with, without really any boundaries? Ask good questions. Honestly, it starts there. And the, the officers that I deal with on the Joint Staff, uh, when I'm in the tank sessions, prepping for General Raymond's tank sessions, um, those are very smart, combat-experienced um, officers uh, at the two-, three-, four-star level. Um, and where it starts is they ask hard, right, the right hard questions, and then we're the ones that have to answer them. It's how will this, if we don't have this bandwidth available to us, tell me how that will affect my operations. Um, if GPS is denied in this area, what is the global effect? Uh, if missile warning takes six minutes instead of three minutes, what is the effect of that, uh, that delay? They have to ask the hard questions, and then we educate, they listen, and then they incorporate that knowledge into plans. They incorporate that knowledge into requirements definitions. They incorporate that because we collectively ask for resources, and they don't fight us when we ask for a little more money here or a little more money there because they know it's a force multiplier. And so I think it just starts with recognizing what you know and don't know and asking the hard questions. And my experience is all of the services at my level are asking those hard questions. Um, from the standpoint of, right, we, you are really reinventing a class of warfare because of where the ad adversaries are taking us uh, in terms of kinetic effects, um, right? I mean, in the 1960s, uh, it was great seeing some of the footage where, you know, folks were shooting at each other and we were thinking about doing it until everybody pretty much concluded that that's a really, really bad idea. Um, hence, why blowing up a satellite in LEO is a really bad idea. What is causus belli? What are acts of war? What, what does, how do we need to think about the battle space because at this point, we're still at a nascent level. People are fielding capabilities without fully thinking through, okay, what does this look like when we start shooting at one another? The short answer is I don't know. We are very early in this process. We are clearly focused on resiliency and defense right out of the gate. There may come a time when we have to go a different direction. What I want to do from my perch 
is I want to build the foundations, the training foundations, so that some captain, lieutenant that's out there has the resources to practice and get better and ask those questions. What if we did this? What if we did that? How might somebody respond? They do it against a, a trained thinking adversary to see how it plays out in a combat situation. Those are those lessons of red flag that I think are still applicable. If you'd have asked an airman in 1949, which is about where we are in equivalency, um, hey, what are, how are you going to deal with the emerging threats that come about in the air? They would have got more wrong than right, right? They would have been thinking about a little less about nuclear in 1949, a little more about tactical support to the Army, because that's where they had come out of with the success of Berlin Airlift. They would have probably overemphasized global mobility uh, relative to what we experienced. We certainly wouldn't have been talking about Vietnam and close air support and napalm in Vietnam. So. The point is, is I don't know where it's going to take us. What I really want to do is build the foundation so that our operators have a place to learn, a place to experiment, a place to innovate, so that they can maximize the capabilities that we present to them, so that no matter what the challenges are that they face in the future, they'll be as ready as we can possibly make them. Um, let me take you to one of actually the foundational elements of your address, which is to create that highly uh, realistic synthetic environment. A lot of the missions you conduct are classified, right? So when you start moving a spacecraft, everybody sees that you're moving it, uh, hence the reason for having things that look like debris that might not actually be debris uh, or nesting or whatever you want to call it. Um, what do we, how are you, what is, what is it you're envisioning? You know, you talked about space flag, which I think is a very, very innovative a way of looking at it, right? Get your op for to really uh, ring out uh, as, as red flag does. What is this architecture? Um, what's the state of the possible? What's the state of the technology? Where do you want it to be driven in terms of preparing guardians for the future? Well, one, one place I, I see uh, tremendous growth that I want to try to take advantage of is this idea of digital engineering and using digital twins as a part of the digital engineering. I've had some great conversations with our acquisition pros and some great discussions with industry partners, and they're talking about how valuable this is to the engineering. Uh, how more efficient they can be in putting the system together before they have to start prototyping and developing and, and, and bending metal. Um, I, I think we take advantage of that. If you build a digital twin of your, of your system and then I pull it into my virtual environment, you know, like I mentioned in my talk with the Apollo 13, if I can put somebody in a simulator and say, hey, what if we cross-strap this battery? Can we double our power and change the, I don't know, let's try it. Let's go into the simulator. And those digital twins are of such high fidelity, whatever conclusions we want to draw from that digital twin might likely work in the real world environment. I think that's a tremendous area where there's already work being done, and now we just have to pull it over into operations and take advantage of it for tactics and testing and validation. Um, and, and some of it, you know, you, you, you said use virtual uh, synthetic, uh, you know, you said that there's a lot of gaming technology that can be used, right? Because you, you don't have a, you're the only, uh, well, I guess cyber falls into this domain as well, where, where there's no sort of haptic feedback, right? I mean, you're not there, you don't feel the vibrations of the spacecraft. I love the space weather thing, by the way, which folks, I think, don't, don't think enough about. Um, or, or do you... Do we have the synthetic environment generation capability, right? I mean, what you're talking about is a vast virtual training uh, environment that you can also embed terrestrial assets in it, right? I mean, so how, how does what you want to develop fit into what the Joint Force is trying to develop in terms of a, a broader architecture? There's, a lot, there's lots of overlap. Things like cloud-based data structures, multi-level security. These are things that are working through the JADC2 construct that I think are going to be perfectly applicable as we start building our virtual training environment. 
I, there's another part of my speech though that I hope people took to heart, and that's that we're not, we can't eat this elephant all in one bite. It's a massive structure we're talking about. I want this to unfold over 30 years. But we can start now. Like, what's the most important thing we can do tomorrow to help build this? And then we'll add layers of complexity. We'll, we'll expand it to fit our lessons as we learn them. If we try to build some mega system and define all the requirements now, I fear we'll get more wrong than right out of the gate. I think an incremental approach is a little more palatable, a little more feasible, and then we don't buy something we don't need. We just simply expand to fill that learning uh, vacuum. Um, that, that's actually uh, so a speed question. Um, General Raymond uh, and the entire uh, Space Force leadership team have been looking at, look, how do we reinvent this service and make it less bureaucratic, make it more agile? And a lot of that is what you don't do as opposed to, as much as what you do do. So how are you guys working this even when you're looking at operational threats and challenges because we have very thinking adversaries that are constantly trying to mislead us, right? You always have a little bit of flash to distract our attention from what it is they're really doing. How are you thinking about speed as, as a team and, and driving that forward, given what we heard from the chief and the secretary? Well, in addition to what the chief said about going fast, and if you create a lean organization, by definition, you have to go fast. You have to prioritize because you don't have the capacity to do lower priority things. That helps naturally. Uh, but again, ask the right questions. Uh, what, do we want to build a system that's looking to the future, or do we want something that's good enough right now, learn those lessons, and expand on those, on those learning points? And I think that's just a more valuable, I think that's just more valuable to the force, is to get something in their hands now they can start experimenting with. Quite frankly, I think the best training tools are going to come from the ideas that the, the young guardians, the, the lieutenants are going to come back to us with and go, hey, you know, if we could do X, Y, and Z, I think we could be far more effective against this type of tactic. Brilliant. What do you need from me? Well, if we had this system or this software change, it might be value added. If we wait for the Pentagon to come up with all the right ideas, we're going to miss uh, quite a bit, I think. Um, last uh, question. I've been uh, pointed out, and you've been very generous with your time. How What's the deterrent time frame as you're thinking about this, right? I mean, the, the key to deterrence is demonstrating to any adversary that, that we have sufficient capability, that if they jam us, for example, or they put kinetic effects in space, that we have ways of, of dealing with that. How long do you think, how big do you think our deterrent window is? How long do we have to develop some of these capabilities to offset what it is, especially in the classified realm, which is more con considerable, to continue deterring our adversaries. Because the biggest problem would be an adversary miscalculating and actually misreading what our state of capability is. It's a complicated question. Deterrence is always one of those things that you can talk in circles uh, if you're not careful. So I think you've described one form of deterrence. Look as strong as you can. That changes the cost-benefit analysis for somebody that wants to aggress against you, no question. The other thing, though, is the way you strategic message, creating ambiguity about what your, your full capabilities are, your decisions that you might make, where you might draw red lines. That kind of ambiguity also puts questions in the minds of potential aggressors. So it's a complicated kind of equation. The, the short answer is the timeline starts now. I mean, we have to deter immediately. If you don't have full capabilities to respond so that they're monitoring your capabilities and try to counter them, then you have to do it with strategic messaging and saying, listen, we're going to have to take severe actions if you, if you behave irresponsibly in space because we can't stand the consequences ourselves. That kind of strategic messaging, the work that's being done in the UN right now with responsible behaviors in space, 
there is strategic messaging there that starts to constrain and deter behavior. Are, are you convinced that we still have a strategic deterrent edge at this point? Yes. Uh, and Deterrence is in the mind of the adversary. And if the adversary uh, calculates that going to war in space against the United States is not in its best interest, at least today, then we have a deterrent posture. Right now, that is, the, that is the case. Am I concerned about what they're doing to try to reshift that? Absolutely. But we've got a pretty capable uh, military, and that changes the calculus of those decisions. Strategic surprise. One of the things I asked General Hynote was whether we're doing a good enough job. We, we tend to be surprised with some of these capabilities, and they're less black swans and more gray rhinos. This is an example I'm using where you sort of see it coming at you, and you still get hit in the head with it, and you're like, wow, I got hit in the head with a rhino. Well, coming at you for a while. Um, are we as good as we need to be in envisioning what an adversary will do that surprises us and focus as much as you said, right, the key to deterrence is to have sufficient capabilities to surprise your adversary. How, how do you gauge how well we're doing on both of those? Determining whether they are going to surprise us. Yet the hard part of that is you don't know what you don't know. You know, and so every time you say, I think we're, I think we're good at this, that's why they call it strategic surprise. Right, because it's the things that you put everything to bear against and somehow it still is a surprising act. Um, I will tell you that by establishing our, our membership in the intelligence community, establishing NSIC, National Space uh, Intelligence Center, um, that's going to establish a foundational intelligence capability that's going to be very important in terms of keeping an eye on what's going on, what the developments are. I'm pretty happy with where we are now. But the pace of play is picking up pretty, pretty substantially, and we're going to need that foundational intelligence capability. And as you would say, resilience is key so that your response is there even when you're surprised, because you know you're going to be surprised. And I like to think about it as almost like an immune system, which is a very COVID-centered topic. But things are going to happen. How well does your system, does your network respond to it to get rid of viruses? How well does it respond to recover as rapidly as possible? And if you know you can recover rapidly, why would the person try to attack you? That's a deterrent capability in and of itself. Um, I have one, one last question. And because you're a nuclear, uh, first order nuclear uh, missileer where you started your uh, career, um, the secretary talked about something which is actually of really vexing, two vexing capabilities, right? The, the development of Chinese ground-based intercontinental mis ballistic missile silos, clearly a lot of messaging there. I know that there are some nuclear strategists who look at this as more distraction, but we have no idea whether or not they will be operationally effective and land-based ICBMs are problematic because you've got to throw a lot of stuff against them to knock them out. I think people have a tendency of forgetting that. Um, at the same time, we're also the secretary raised the potential of putting nuclear weapons in space. How does this change how we need to think architecturally? Because all of our fundaments of deterrence start to change in this kind of an equation. And this might be something that actually falls firmly in your patch as theoreticians did you know, decades ago. How do we need to think about where we are and where we're going? I think it's a great thought piece. I, I haven't given it the kind of thought uh, that probably it merits. Um, I'll have to talk to the secretary, quite frankly, get a, get a feel for what he's thinking. I just know there's so much work to be done on the conventional side, on the resiliency side, on the defense side, on the training side. There's so much work to be done there that will have powerful deterrent motives, I think, in the end. That's where I want to focus on, and so I just haven't given it that kind of thought yet. Sir, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Look forward to continuing the conversation at a strategic level. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.
And joining us now is Eric Hine, who is the Vice President uh, for Defense Advanced Development and Space Programs at Spirit Aerosystems. Eric, thanks very much uh, for joining us. You know, I remember uh, at this show two years ago, Dwayne du uh, Hawkins, uh, the President of uh, Defense and Space at Spirit Aerosystems, talked to us about the goal of uh, making 40% of the company's business uh, coming from defense and space, uh, including in advanced weapons. You guys obviously are known for big aerostructures, whether uh, the uh, MH-53K uh, fuselage, uh, and certainly in the commercial side of the business where you guys are integral. Uh, Boeing couldn't do what it does on any of its programs, for example, if it wasn't for the work you guys do with aerostructures and fuselages, for, for example, the 737 line. Talk to us a little bit about the revolution in um, production that's happening right now uh, because it's transformative, whether it's digital design, model-based design, uh, and also in terms of manufacturing equipment where you guys are actually manufacturing the parts uh, that you guys are integrating into a lot of your systems as opposed to looking outside your borders. Talk to us about this revolution and what it means for your guys' programs. Yeah, certainly. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, just talking through the uh, the revolution that we're seeing across across the industry, we're really seeing uh, a, a move towards having suppliers, especially large suppliers like Spirit, becoming a lot more integrated in the uh, the prime and the OEM design cycle. So, leveraging tools like uh, integrated digital environments, we call those IDEs, to where we can actually um, coordinate real time with the product development, and that that creates a lot of advantages for uh, just the development cycle in terms of not having risk and or, um, reducing risk early, not having waste and handoffs, and then just also bringing some of our government customers into seeing seeing what's happening in real time with the development cycle. Um, can I, can sure. I just ask, right, I mean, everybody talks about the digital design cycle. Explain to people what that fully means for those who are not as immersed in what it means and they just listen to that as a, as a buzzword, why that's actually dramatically different from the way that we've historically been doing this, even for an industry that prides itself on innovation. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for I'm going to give you a, a supplier perspective on this. So, but from, from our perspective, what, what that really means is we're able to interact with our customers, uh, first of all, with requirements, um, having digitized requirements that are, in many cases, model-based. Now we're moving more towards model-based requirements. Um, actually, um, in being in the same development um, environments as our customers, and then for Spirit, um, having the, that um, authoritative engineering source going forward drive our downstream processes. So today, when you look at what we do in uh, specifically in things like tooling design, uh, planning, work instructions, we're, we're making copies upon copies of, of the source data. And so when we have to go forward and make a change, we have to redo a lot of that activity. So we're actually keying back to it. We're re-architecting our systems going forward to be able to key back to that authoritative engineering data. And, and what that, that will do is enable us to incorporate change. It'll actually make change more affordable down the road as well. And, and and so talk to us about that whole downstream process, right? Because one of the things that even average Americans are now coming confronting with is, you know, supply chain vulnerabilities. Um, obviously, in anything defense and aerospace related, lead times tend to be very long. And ultimately, everybody's trying to shorten those lead times and shorten those vulnerability cycles. Talk to us about sort of ar architecturally how this is changing, how you guys do business, and how this actually feeds into your strategic growth goals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think if you if you if you look at the fact that um, from a supply chain standpoint, a lot of how um, business has been done in the past, 
um, at certain companies will have at large buys of, of parts or we'll use um, we use a max min system where we can we build a certain level of inventory and hold that based on on what we're looking at going forward um, our, our advanced manufacturing strategy team at spirit um, has been working um, also on a, uh, a system which we think will uh, will eventually be a lot more widespread where the supply chain can be digitally plugged into our demand system. They can see what's coming, and then we can see what they're working on as well, where our parts are in their systems. And so we're, we, we've initiated a project um, to start, start really developing that technology, which, which is primarily on the commercial side now, but that's a challenge that we're going to have to meet on the defense side as well to have a, a fully dynamic supply base. And uh, uh, so how does that feed into growth for you, for you guys, right? You're known as an aircraft. Uh, you've expanded into um, missiles and effectors. Um, you guys also have had a space business, but you're growing it there. So walk us through on each axis how you guys are sort of expanding that, that base and keeping uh, Duane, uh, who's the demanding boss, uh, happy. Sure. So, um, so in terms of, of growth and how we're driving that in, into growth, um, at Spirit, we have we have several um, um, specific growth strategies. Where uh, Spirit's focused on hypersonics growth, um, so we're um, you know, we just purchased FMI last year, which is a uh, which is a high temp materials provider. Uh, we're focused on manned and unmanned aircraft, also um, next generation effects, and also space. Those are our, our main growth strategies, and we say the, we see these same um, all these commercial practices that we're developing also feeding over and driving all of these strategies and being a large part of those going forward and it's especially on the digital engineering front and um, you know if you don't if you if you look at all the messaging and everything going on right now especially at this show uh, the safe show that we're at uh, today um, it's all around digital engineering um, everyone's needing to evolve and adapt to that and that's that's going to be primary uh, it's primary cornerstone for our growth strategy and investment, and I, and I know it will be for all our competitors, too. Um, uh, speaking of speed, right, I mean, we've been hearing accelerate change or lose. Certainly, that's the uh, message from the chief. We've also been hearing it from Secretary Kendall, who obviously was acquisition technology and logistics. He was the undersecretary, so was doing everything from R&D uh, to the, the acquisition of major uh, programs. And there is still... You know, as we heard from General Hynote yesterday, that even if we tried to accelerate, for example, B-21, there are limits to how much we can uh, accelerate it. You guys are obviously an important player on that program, and I'm not going to ask you anything specifically on that. But what's the state of the possible? And if we wanted to really accelerate, what's our bandwidth to be able to do so? Because folks do harken back to World War II, where we were able to develop very cutting edge aircraft, but do it very quickly and then get them into production. And if you look at the how manufacturing tooling has changed and the availability of it, it's actually more flexible than it's probably been in decades for us to be able to do things very, very quick, complex things very quickly. Mm -hmm. What's the state of the art and how much of this is sort of bureaucratic program management, not necessarily in a bad way, and how much of this is actually like, if we wanted to do it, we could actually do it and do it really fast? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll kind of break that down. I think um, I'm going to start with state of the art. I, you know, I, for us, as we're looking at, at, at future programs and how we're, how we're driving our strategy, um, we're, when you look at state of the art and you take digital engineering and you combine that with uh, what I would call state-of-the-art manufacturing and assembly processes, things like um, drilling full-size holes in detail parts instead of on the assembly line. So you can have 
completely flexible assembly lines with minimal tooling strategies and the ability to scale up or down in rate um, very quickly. Uh, those, those types of components which are enabled by digital engineering are, are going to be key and state-of-the-art to scaling. And then, of course, all the things that I mentioned earlier with um, being able to drive the digital thread through the factory, have dynamic scheduling, uh, dynamic um, asset tracking within the plant. Um, doing all of those things and bringing all those things together, I think, could enable us as an industry to scale uh, very quickly. I think for, for someone like us, <clears throat> I think it takes hitting the go button, especially in a community like, like in Wichita, Kansas, where aviation is a core, you know, we're, we're, we can pull from all the different aerospace manufacturers that are that are within that pool within Wichita. So, and of course, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we, that's that's been seen in Wichita before with the B-29s and uh, B-52s of the past. So that's uh, to me, that's something we can go do again, and we can scale even quicker with these tool sets that are at our disposal. Eric, thanks very much. Uh, yeah. Best of luck. And I uh, can't imagine any place better that has uh, actually uh, great aerospace and great meat all in, in the same place. So, I mean, it's pretty much paradise. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You need to come to Wichita and have a steak with us. And joining us now is my good friend John Turpak of Air Force Magazine, one of the world's top uh, reporters covering the United States Air Force and air power worldwide. John, thanks very much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Obviously, today was uh, Space Day. You don't cover space uh, per se, uh, but you uh, were in many of uh, the press conferences across uh, the day with the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force uh, and other uh, leaders. And, you know, everybody has been focused on the, the change and the innovation message. We heard that from Secretary Kendall. We heard that from the Chief on day one. Today, obviously, a lot of space was highlighted with uh, Chief of Space Operations, uh, General uh, John uh, Raymond and his team. Obviously, folks uh, heard uh, the the first segment with Salty uh, Lieutenant uh, General Salty Saltzman, uh, the Deputy uh, Chief of Space uh, Operations. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you've been tracking at this at this show. Obviously, we heard from Dave Deptula yesterday of the Mitchell Institute. What were some of the things that jumped out at you uh, today? Well, everybody's been uh, uh, very favorably impressed with uh, Frank Kendall, our new Secretary of the Air Force. Uh, who admitted yesterday that he actually campaigned for this job because he, he believes China is such a serious threat and he wants to make sure that the Air and Space Forces, uh, which he feels are the key forces to blunting uh, China's rise as a military power, he, he wanted to be part of that and, and guide the service uh, as it goes through a very critical time. And his message was loud and clear. We're out of time. We can't fool around anymore. We have to make some big changes in hardware, organization. And that message was echoed by the chief and all the, the senior leaders. Um, you, you know, you also have been tracking a vast uh, assortment of programs, right? I mean, one of them is the B-52 re-engineering program. Uh, you know, one leader after another made clear that that's going to be a foundational program. Uh, obviously, um, you know, and, and that B-21 is also proving to be successful and moving through the pipeline. Uh, certainly, folks would like it faster, but it's still moving pretty uh, quickly. Um, what's, what's, what's your sense on some of the stories that you've been covering and other sort of sub-themes? Uh, yeah, because, you know, you've always got a lot in your basket, and generally they tend to be strategic stories. Sure. Well, um, nuclear modernization has been on the tip of everybody's tongue here. Um, the Minuteman program is 50 years old. We're still flying B-52s that were built before I was built. Uh, <laughs> Uh, even the B-2, our newest Darth Vader stealth bomber, is over 20 years old. So um, 
very clear message. You were at the rollout that was nearly <laughs> 30 years old, <laughs> 30 years ago, John. Uh, it's true. It was true. It was uh, uh, December of uh, 1991. It was the anniversary of the Wright brothers uh, that they were commemorating with that uh, arrival at Whiteman Air Force Base. I remember being jealous for not being there. Uh, don't be jealous. It was about 10 degrees and the wind was blowing in Missouri that day. But anyway, the, uh, the strategic modernization has been a huge part of this. The new ICBM seems to be going very well. Uh, everyone has high marks for that. The B-21 also. We learned that there are five of those airplanes now in construction. The first one should fly middle of next year. Um, so there was a lot of attention paid to that in the context of what Secretary Kendall said yesterday. Uh, that uh, he believes China is developing a first strike capability with their ICBMs, and so that has kind of uh, uh, put the pedal to the metal on the strategic modernization program for the Air Force. Um, you uh, have been uh, tracking um, the Air Force, and we have been hearing this change message, and we hear it periodically, right? Um, the question is whether or not you see the needle moving as quickly as it needs to be moving. It's not that folks are not saying the right things. The chief is obviously very change-minded, uh, but each chief in their own way is change-minded in trying to drive uh, progress. Um, I think that folks would say that C.Q. Brown is pushing it much harder, and he now has a secretary who is also pushing it harder. But do you see any things that are changing meaningfully in the more sort of granular coverage that, that you're trying to give, you know, the more granular attention you're paying to this than a lot of other people? Uh, General Brown is uh, uh, clearly pushing decision-making down to lower levels. Uh, but what I would like to see from him is what is the roadmap to change? Where are we going? Uh, uh, the uh, head of uh, Tactical Air Command once said something improves only if you measure it. So how are we measuring change and what's the end state? If there is an end state, but clearly where we are is not where he wants to be. And so I'd be interested in knowing exactly how he sees that roadmap to getting where he thinks we have to be 15 years from now. He keeps talking about the, the 2030 to 2035 time frame when China will have uh, uh, achieved most of its goals about becoming a power on an equal footing with the United States. Um, to the nuclear modernization question, um, one of the things that uh, Secretary Kendall mentioned that is the source of a lot of discussion is this notion that the Chinese might put ICBMs in space. Obviously, this was rods from God, right? I mean, so it's not necessarily a, a you know a nefarious Chinese idea. Folks have been talking about this, uh, and obviously, that would shorten response times. What's sort of the feedback you've gotten in your reporting over the last day about what that means? Because it is arguably the combination, as he pointed out, of Chinese ICBM building and then maybe doing some other things are particularly vexing and, as he said, right, one of the most dangerous things that he knows has happened uh, in over, over the past several decades. What are you picking up from folks? Because in the event that the Chinese do something like that, that is a really game-changing capability that would put us in a pretty interesting position, I think, to put it mildly. Well, of course, nobody's talking about what they know for sure, because that's a matter of national secrecy. Uh, but what the emphasis that they have been putting on is that China is not signatory to any nuclear arrangements whatsoever. They can build as many ICBMs as they want. They can put as many warheads on them as they want. They're not signatory to any treaties about 
not raining down nuclear weapons from space. So that has kind of given more emphasis to the strategic modernization argument that if they won't play, then we have to deter them. And uh, that's, that's been a major point of discussion. Um, it, it is interesting, right? I mean, if you're Chinese, you're presenting the United States with all of these complicated problems. It's actually pretty smart of the Chinese to have done what they've done because they're looking and saying, okay, well, they're doing a nuclear modernization to deter me in part, and I only have 600 weapons. So it really makes sense from a Chinese perspective to make this innovation. Now, not to end this on a light note, uh, but um, you've covered a couple of uh, Air Force uniforms over the year uh, years, uh, and uh, the um, uh, chief of space operations uh, has unveiled the new Space Force uniform. Uh, what do you uh, make of that uniform as there were folks on the show floor who were talking about it? I mean, uh, interestingly, they, they were talking more about the uniform than they were talking about anything else that General Raymond said, and even though General Saltzman and others uh, had a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, you know, what, what's your sense of, of where that's going to go? What we have seen many times before when senior leadership makes a uniform change or introduces a un new uniform, um, it's got to play with the peanut gallery. The, the troops have got to love it, and the retirees, the veterans, also have to love it. Uh, I think the jury's way out on, uh, on this one. Uh, it is a radical departure from the Air Force uniform. The original Air Force uniform was very similar to the Army uniform because the Air Force came from the Army. It was basically a switch from a green uniform to a blue uniform. This has some exotic styling with the, uh, the buttons, with the collar. Um, the pants don't seem to fit. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to play with the people who actually have to wear it. But we've had a couple of episodes before where uh, we had Merrill McPeak's uh, Eastern Airlines uniform. Uh, we had a, uh, only a few examples made of what was called the band leader uniform, uh, which we saw uh, late in, in uh, uh, General Norty Schwartz's tenure, and those have both thankfully gone away. Um, so who's to say how long this is going to last or whether it will be modified? Every chief gets a chance to uh, have a, a say about the uniform. And, and Mark Welch uh, wore that uniform, right, when he took command of the United States Air Force. He did. He did. But you were pulling for the fishbowl and the silver jumpsuit, weren't you? It, it, either that or the, 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 the polling was going towards something from Star Trek, yeah. Um, although I have to say, this show Space Force had a pretty decent, right? I mean, they went with the black shirt. I mean, that was kind of a good uniform. Good adaptation, middle ground. I thought it looked extremely plausible. <laughs> John, thanks as always for joining us. And uh, for anybody, uh, one of these days, we're going to launch the color commentary version of this program. And John is going to be one of our regular guests. Thanks very much and break a leg on day three. You bet. Thanks so much.